open your Bibles up to Proverbs 15. We have spent not a little time in Proverbs 15. Uh, we'll spend a little more tonight, but the, the plan, anyway, is to move on through it and to continue on through chapter 16. And I want to encourage you, there's a good chance we'll be finishing up chapter 15, oh, right about the hour mark, and you're going to be thinking, how in the world are we going to do chapter 16 as well? Uh, just, I was going to say trust me, but that's not going to work. Just just hang in there. <laughs> hang in there. And again, Holy Father, thank you so much for blessing us. Lord, I, I am just blessed with, uh, with the presence of every single person here. And it is so, Father, may I just say it's fun. It's fun to be here. I love coming here midweek. I love seeing who is who is here. And uh, I love opening the Word and sharing this together. And I just pray that you bless your Word, Father. And Holy Spirit, that you would come now and teach us your Word and your truth. Give us, Lord, divine insight. And we pray that uh, you will be honored in what is spoken. In Jesus' name, Amen. amen. Alright, so Proverbs 15, verse 1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable, but the mouth of fools spouts folly. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. A soothing tongue is a tree of life, but perversion in it crushes the spirit. Now, a couple of weeks back, we saw several verses out of chapter 15, and we looked at them on a Sunday morning in the context of the sharing of the gospel, of sweet words coming out of our mouths, and the best words that we can ever speak are, Jesus saves. God loves you. Speaking the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we recognized at that time from Luke chapter 1, verse 37, when the angel came to Mary, when Gabriel came and said, with God, nothing is impossible. We looked at those words, remember? And specifically what that means or how it's best translated is with God, no spoken word is without power. Now, words can or cannot have power in and of themselves, but when you speak God's word, there is, I believe, an inherent power there that is different than the putting together of any other words, any other sentences that we speak, things that we make up, do not have the potency, the power of the Word of God. And as, as a support for that, Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11, two of my favorite verses in the entire Bible, and by the way, one of the main reasons why when we started the bridge, we just started walking through the Scripture together. This verse... As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bear and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. With God, no spoken word is without power. When He sends out His word, it comes back to Him full. When he sends out his word, it succeeds. And where the church has gotten off, and you know we've talked about this, and, and I have been so guilty of this in my ministry life, but where the church has gotten off is in trying to come up with words to persuade that are not the words of God. Trying to come up with our own ideas of how to you know, bait and switch the world into believing the gospel. Like the Kirby vacuum cleaner guy who's up at my house right now. He's gone. 
He's gone. <laughs> Hallelujah. We didn't buy it. Did, did, did Cheryl, do you know? He was at our house too, later. He was at your house too? And then our neighbor called asking if we were okay. Yeah. Yeah, he's hitting the neighborhoods. Watch out, the curvy guy's coming. Nice man, you know, but it was the old bait and switch. Hey, I'll clean your carpets for you, and next thing you know, you're in this whole... Yeah, I didn't fall for it. I was in the other room. Cheryl let him in. <laughs> With God, no spoken word is without... I'm kidding, by the way. That's she, it's not, it was my fault. Let's just blame me. I realized lately I blamed her for a few too many things in sermons, and I need to dial it back a bit. And I'm proving right now that uh, with Rick, many spoken words are without power. With God, no spoken word is without power. But when it comes to your mouth and mine, it's a different story. There can be a great amount of perversion. What's incredible, and James talks about it, from the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. We can be worshiping God, singing like angels one minute, and the next hour be uttering the most profane things. Same mouth. And it's quite remarkable to me. James says in James chapter 3, verse 2, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. In other words, ain't no perfect men. But he says, this man would be able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. And I'm thinking about this. We need a bit. We need a bit of wisdom is what we need. A bit of wisdom. And all puns aside, we truly do. The wisdom of God is what we need coming out of our mouths to direct us. To guide us as we walk. The tongue of the wise is the tongue that is speaking God's word. And by the way, the only way you can be speaking God's word is if His word happens to already be in your heart. Because it's coming out of the heart and right out of the mouth. So we need a bit of wisdom. The question is, will we accept or reject the wisdom that God offers? Will we receive it or will we push it away? Verse 5 tells us a fool rejects his father's discipline. But he who regards reproof is sensible. Will we accept or reject? Verse 6 tells us great wealth is in the house of the righteous, but trouble is in the income of the wicked. Just ask Bernie Madoff. You know? By the way, I, I want to point this out, and I, I have a couple of times... uh, Solomon does this thing where he often compares wealth to righteousness. Where he ties the two together. But you need to understand the perspective that he's coming from. Remember, Solomon was the richest, wealthiest man ever to have lived. If anyone had it, Solomon had it. And from that perspective, you know, once you've gotten hold of everything, you don't really need it anymore. Once you've walked a certain path and you've experienced it, it doesn't really mean that much to you. When Solomon talks about wealth... When he says great wealth is in the house of the righteous, he's not talking about what the Bible later calls filthy lucre. He's not talking about stores of money and jewels and gold. What he's talking about, the word there in the Hebrew is chosen. And chosen literally means storage. Great storage is in the house of the righteous. In other words, the righteous person is someone who stores up, who treasures up. Now, obviously, when you ask the question, what would you store up for? 
The easiest answer is the future, right? You prepare for the future. Mormons are big on storage. You know anything about the Mormon church and Mormonism, they're very big on storage in the event of disaster. And there was a time in the history of Mormonism where they were supposed to, in case of impending disaster, were supposed to have stored up years' worth of goods. And then they dialed that back down to about a year, and now I think it's down to like three months. You know, every Mormon has to have at least three months' worth of goods, just in case something happens. But the person who stores up after the, after the manner of Jesus Christ isn't storing for disaster. The kind of storage Jesus calls us to is storage for eternity, which has very little to do with finances and monetary wealth. Matthew 6.19 tells us, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And you know, there are people who would disagree with me on this, and that's okay, you can be wrong, and we can still be friends. But the idea... The idea of of storing up, of preparing in case America takes a dive. You can do that. I would far rather spend my time on kingdom things. I would much rather, as Jesus says, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. Because all these things God tells us are going to be added to us. You know, America is not the first country in history to face financial collapse. America is not the first country in history to face the prospect of no longer being great. And we very well may not be. This country could very well go the way of so many countries before us. Babylon, Persia, Rome. We could end up a second, third world nation. Is that possible? Does it say anywhere in Scripture that if the worst happens in your country, God will cease to provide for those who trust Him? For those who seek first the kingdom? No. He just says, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom. These are the words of a homeless man. Seek first the kingdom and His righteousness. And so when Solomon says, when he says in verse 6, great wealth is in the house of the righteous, great storage. The righteous have treasured something up. It is righteousness that prepares us for the future we seek. And I hope you hear this. Jesus does not encourage storage units for this life. In fact, I recall a parable about a man in several barns. And his barns becoming full. And the Lord saying, Dude, tonight your life is required of you. So what are you storing up for? The message of the Gospel The message of the gospel, you can put it this way, it's very much a now and then message. It's now and that this is the message for us to get out. This is the message that brings salvation immediately, instantaneously. But it is a message for then because the emphasis is on preparing us for then. Hearing the message and preaching the message now, preparing us for then. But I keep hearing teaching that undermines this. I keep seeing books coming out that state the opposite of this. Verse 7 tells us the lips of the wise spread knowledge. And the indication is godly knowledge. But the hearts of fools are not so. Lips of the wise spread knowledge. The hearts of fools are not so. God has, by His Word, given us foreknowledge of the days to come. 
which is remarkable. Didn't have to do that. He could have just left, left us guessing. Instead, He gave us the revelation. He gave us the unveiling. You know, the apocalypsis, which doesn't mean great world disaster. It means the unveiling. And He did this because He wanted us to know what was coming. He wanted us to know. He, he poured out promises to Israel with an absolute guarantee that He would fulfill them. We talked about some of that last week in the prophecy update. He has clearly laid out the circumstances that will surround the return of Jesus. He's invited us to live with a sense of imminency, the imminent return of Christ, and urgency because of the imminent return of Christ. But it's getting distorted, gang. And the Bible tells us that message is going to become more and more distorted and mocked and scorned as the days wind down. The Word of God on the tongue is not only a great bit or or bridle, it's also the megaphone of the Gospel, which is why I get concerned when the message of the Gospel is distorted. What are you getting at, Rick? Two distortions I'll just share with you quickly tonight. Things that I've seen. I, I was sent a book in the mail by a sister in Christ, a, a wonderful sister, but who has been struggling. She doesn't attend here, but she goes to another church, and, and I've had some email conversation with her, and she's been struggling with the whole scenario of the book of Revelation, the end times, what the Bible says about that. She comes from a, a Reformed background. She comes from a replacement theology background, as far as I can understand, that the church has replaced Israel. And so she's been struggling with all these things. And she sent me this book with a, a two-page letter just saying, I finally found the book that states the case, and I, I have so much peace about this now. And the book's called Christianity's Great Dilemma, Is Jesus Coming Again or Not? What the author of the book does is go through primarily, probably 99% uh, New Testament passages to prove and to show that Jesus came in A.D. 70. That that was it. That was the second coming. That it all happened back then. That it happened with the fall of Jerusalem. That that was the tribulation that was, that was foretold. I didn't even have to read the book. I flipped through it. And I found out of all the pages and all the New Testament verses that he quoted, two references to the Hebrew Scriptures. Here's the problem. He leaves out all of God's promises to Israel. And as I prayed earlier, and as I said just a moment ago, promises God said, I will fulfill these. Promises that have yet to be fulfilled. Now, what the preterist does with that is, is turn around and say, well, yeah, but Israel failed in keeping the covenant, so God is no longer bound by those promises. The covenant to David was unconditional. You know, the covenant to Abraham, the land covenant, out of all the covenants, and we've shared this before, one covenant, the Mosaic covenant, is the only one that was conditional. The only one where God said, Israel, if you do this, then I will do this. Blessings, curses. You got a choice. Only one. Every single one of the rest of the promises. But, you know, to find that out, you've got to read the whole Word of God. And not just sit in the New Testament to try to pull out proof text. Now, don't get me wrong. I love the New Testament. As much as I love what we call the Old, I like to call it the Older Testament. The Hebrew Scriptures. We take in the whole entire Word of God. Because if we don't, we start to leave things out. And God didn't give us His Word to proof text our position or our opinion. 
He said again, My word will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. The other book I've mentioned a couple of times actually, and I I don't mean to bash on this, but it's just such a perfect example for where we're about to go in the next verse. Rob Bell's new book, Love Wins. Rob Bell, in the Emergent Church movement, and I read the whole book. I uploaded it to my Kindle, and I read through the whole thing. And it got more and more painful every page. (laughs) So you probably got my opinion on the book. But here's the deal. After lobbing question after question after unanswered question, he never answers the questions, he just asks them. And after all these questions, he lands at a universal solution, universal salvation, that ultimately somehow, someway, everybody's going to end up in heaven. Everybody. And that hell is not a literal hell. And that it's just kind of a universal thing. Now again, I, I wouldn't bring this back up except these next several verses deal a sound blow to the idea of universalism. <coughs> and I pointed out as an example, along with the other book, that there are distortions out there. And whatever books you read, please, I've said this so many times, I know I'm getting sounding like a dead horse here. Or like I'm beating a dead horse. I hope I'm not sounding like a dead horse. That would be <laughs> that would be a bad thing. <laughs> I bring these up just to say <laughs> I bring this up to say once again, whatever you read outside of Scripture, please have your Bible open at the same time, especially if it's purporting to be some kind of Christian doctrine or teaching or idea. But all that to say, I believe in a God of grace. I believe He is also a God of righteousness and judgment, and that's the problem with universalism. There are still things which, like it or not, are abominable. To God. And I'm not talking snowmen. Read verse 8. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves one who pursues righteousness. Note, note this he doesn't say he loves one who is intrinsically righteous, he loves one who's pursuing righteousness, who's going after it. He says in verse 10, Grievous punishment is for him who forsakes the way. He who hates reproof will die. Sheol, or death, and Abaddon, or destruction, lie open before the Lord, how much more the hearts of men. Now, listen to me for a minute here. The word abomination, that's a serious word in Scripture. When God says, I, that is an abomination to me, the word in the Hebrew, to'abah, means to loathe. These are things God loathes. He hates. He is disgusted by the sacrifice of the wicked. He is disgusted by. He loathes the way of the wicked. If in the wave of of, of tolerance right now that seems to be sweeping across the church, we keep seeing this tacit Acceptance, if not in some cases bold acceptance, of things that God says are unacceptable. And this troubles me because there's not some denominational board sitting over here that has decided what is acceptable and what is not. It's not a group of pastors who 2,000 years ago got their heads together and said, you know, our culture makes this right, so this is the way it's going to be. This is 
the everlasting, eternal word of the living God. And there are things God says simply are unacceptable. Period. But in the church, we're saying, yeah, but but this is 2011. Things have changed. Not the word. Not the word. Sound doctrine is being supplanted to soothe human sensibilities. And I just encourage you all, because you're going to be in conversations, you probably are, philosophies are going to be thrown about, ideas, and you're going to be painted as uncaring or unloving or intolerant or narrow-minded. Great. But there are two questions involved here, and we have to decide which one we're going to answer. Question number one, what must we in this postmodern culture learn to live with? Now you can go down that road and ask that question. Churches do. What do we have to do to get more people in the door? How do we need to change what we are to be more palatable to the world around us? And that's one question, and churches are asking that and seeking answers for that. Or, you can ask this one. What is acceptable to God? What is offensive to God? Lord, what what is it that matters to you? And that's the issue, isn't it? It's not how I can soothe the savage beast of culture, but how can I live to please Jesus? Why am I directing this at the church? Well, note this in verse 8. It's the context of the church, of religion. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. The prayer of the righteous is His delight. Sacrifice and prayer. Solomon is talking about what's happening in the temple. Solomon's saying, if you're coming to temple, and he's talking to the Jews, if you're coming to temple with a sacrifice, but you're living a wicked life, it is an abomination. God loathes that. Why? Because God is real. Because God's authentic. Because God doesn't want to play games with you or anybody else. He is not into pretense. You know, we've got 2,000 years of religion that's tried to be pretentious. That's not God. God keeps it real. God says, you know what? If you've had a stinking, filthy, sinful week, tell me about it. Don't try to hide it. Because if you tell me, we can work together on it. If you hide it, you're only messing yourself up because I already know. Let's keep it real. Solomon is saying there's, there's something more important than what you bring to God in terms of sacrifice or prayer or ministry or offering, or tithing. There's something more important than what you bring, and that is how you bring it. And we learn this in the very first offering that we see in Scripture. Genesis chapter 4, verse 3, it tells us it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. In other words, he started moping. And then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain didn't have an offering problem. The problem was not the fruit basket. The problem was the heart. The problem was the way in which it was brought. To perform some kind of religious observance, gang, 
whether it's prayer or going to church or doing some kind of ministry activity, whatever it is, to perform some kind of religious observance while living contrary to the righteousness of God is an abomination to God. In fact, it's more offensive to the Lord than just living a pure, out-and-out sinful life. Jesus says, man, I'd rather you wear the hot or cold. Choose up size, but this walking down the middle of the road, this lukewarm, that's the stuff that makes me want to spit, Jesus says. If you're lukewarm, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. To Israel, the Lord said in Amos chapter 5, verse 21, I hate, I reject your festivals. Nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Oh, you look, you know, so holy and so righteous. I don't delight in that. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Why, Lord? Because Israel was knee deep, waist deep, neck deep in idolatry. God said, you're keeping these festivals, but you're adding all of this sick filth to it. You're playing games with me. God is never into games. Now we should find that absolutely refreshing. We don't have to play around. We don't have to try and dress it up. We come to God as we are. We offer ourselves to Him as we are. He begins the sanctification process and we walk in openness and honesty in the light with the Father as He is in the light. And we get fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. What a marvelous thing. Do you see that the issue issue for the church, as well as for you and me personally, is not what we are comfortable with, but it's what pleases God. What pleases you, Lord? Titus chapter 1, verse 16 says, They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Saying one thing and doing another. It's false religion that says, Oh yeah, I'll go to church on my terms. I'll come to you, Lord, my way. I'll do the worship thing as long as I can do my thing on the side. It's disingenuous. God hates it. It's the mindset that says, I'll do my thing, but here in the temple I'll pretend to be holy. God says, or David wrote in Psalm 51.16, You do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I'd give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The Psalm David wrote when he came before the Lord in confession after having been caught in the whole lie, murder, and adultery with Bathsheba. Psalm 51, one of the most precious passages of all of Scripture, and we've looked at that because David was real. Nothing to hide. He laid it all out before the Lord. What delights the Lord? The prayer of the upright. What is it that that the Lord loves? He loves the one who's pursuing righteousness. Again, you don't have to get it. You just need to pursue it. You may be tripping along the way. You may find yourself flat on your knees along the way or on your face, but pursue righteousness. You've already been saved by grace if you're walking in Jesus Christ, so you got your salvation. Now pursue righteousness. Get real with God. Verse 10 says, Grievous punishment is for him who forsakes the way. He who hates reproof will die. Sheol and abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of men. Man, if he can see into death and destruction, don't you think he can see 
Your heart? What do these verses indicate about universal salvation? Grievous punishment is for him who forsakes the way. Jesus said in Matthew 7.13, Enter through the narrow gate. That's, by the way, being narrow-minded. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. Listen to that. Jesus says, There are many who enter through the way of destruction. That doesn't sound like universal salvation to me. But why, someone might ask, why would God send somebody to hell eternally? I mean, that just seems extreme. Well, first of all, if you want to talk extremes, there's only one way to go to hell. It's over Jesus' dead body. The only way you can get into hell is to literally bypass the cross on the way there. To reject that sacrifice is the only way to get into hell. It it takes that kind of rejection. In other words, you bypass the cross, you trample the sacrifice of Jesus, and that gets you in. Furthermore, this word, this truth, is not here to send people to hell. Just the opposite is to keep people out. So God's intention is not to send anybody to hell. We choose that. In fact, you know, hell wasn't even created for us. Jesus said hell, Matthew 25, was created for the devil and his angels. But those who would trample the body of Christ, those who would bypass the cross, those who would reject the open opportunity that God lays out of grace and salvation, are choosing an eternal punishment. You really believe that, Lord? Well, that's, Rick, you believe that? That's what the Bible says. Jesus says many people still will bypass the cross. Why? Well, the next verse gives explanation. A scoffer does not love one who reproves him. He will not go to the wise. And there's a point that people get to, that point of no return, where you just determine you will not go to the wise. The wise Jesus, who is wisdom in and of himself, and there comes a point in some people's lives where they say, I don't want the wise. I will not go to. I don't want anything to do with Jesus Christ. And so they've chosen a direction. This is the thing the universalist misses. If you're determined to reject the sacrifice of Jesus, there is no way out of hell. And by the way, I'm absolutely convinced, based on what I see in Scripture, that if we were to pop the lid off of hell a billion years into eternity, what we would still find is bitterness, cursing, screaming, and rebellion. Why would you say that, Rick? Well, what's interesting, if you read through Revelation, as many many of you have, you see that time and time again, even during the tribulation, even during the outpouring of God's wrath, He offers over and over and over opportunity for people to be saved. And it tells us again and again, they refused to repent so as to be saved. This world's going to get into a place, and it's staggering to even consider, but a place where God pulls out all the stops. Angel, an angel flying in mid-heaven, shouting, Repent! witnesses, probably, I think, personally, Moses and Elijah, in Jerusalem, preaching on all the news channels, 24-7. 144,000 Jewish Billy Graham scattered all over the earth, preaching the truth of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. But they will refuse to repent so as to be saved. 
This world's going to get into a place where the distance between the supernatural and the natural is very thin and people are going to see and know and still choose to reject Jesus. Such is rebellion. Such is the ugliness of sin. But on a lighter note, verse 13 tells us, (laughs) A joyful heart makes a cheerful face. But when the heart is sad, the spirit is broken. The mind of the intelligent seeks knowledge, but the mouth of fools feeds on folly. All the days of the afflicted are bad, but a cheerful heart has a continual feast. In these three verses, we see a wonderful three-way pattern here. What we consume affects the condition of the heart, which then literally affects the countenance of the face. There should be a, a facial reaction to what God is doing in your heart. If there's joy in the heart, it should show on the face. The more we feast on godly things, the brighter our countenance. The more joyful we just appear. We feast on godly things, our hearts fill up with love, and it overflows in joy on our faces. But, if we feed on folly, as I had a dish of that yesterday, and the heart gets heavy with sorrow, it draws the face down. Sour, grumpy, dismal expression. Yeah, I was grumpy yesterday because my new mortgage statement came. Property taxes up, home value down, and my mortgage is going up. It's like, you've got to be kidding me. I was extra grumpy because I did the math wrong and I thought my mortgage was going up a lot more than it really is. found that out this morning after, (laughs) after the Lord dealt with me. But I was grumpy. I really was. I was just... It was the end of the day. It had been a long day anyway. I was grumpy. And it spilled into the whole evening. Cheryl can tell you. I was grumpy all evening. And we sat down to watch the movie and I sat there on the chairs and... (laughs) Island County taxes. (laughs) And you know... I just love Jesus because then I opened up this morning. A joyful heart makes a cheerful face. A cheerful heart has a continual feast. I started laughing. You know, I have to be careful though. I'm 46 years old right now. And you know what Abraham Lincoln said? He said, at the age of 50, you end up with the face that you deserve. So... So those of you who are getting close, spend a little extra time feasting on good, joyful things. Samuel Rutherford, Samuel Rutherford put it this way. He said, I wonder many times that ever a child of God should have a sad heart, considering what his Lord is preparing for him. <laughs> that is so spot on. Jesus said, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And as I was reading this this morning, I heard him say, and Rick, it's not going to cost you a thing. <laughs> if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Praise the Lord. Ha! 
Hallelujah. How can any thinking Christian not walk around with a silly grin on our, our face all the time? That grin that people say, man, you're so cheerful. What's up? I'm going to a place prepared. And I could lose everything here. And you know what? Big deal. I'm going to heaven. And I'm going with Jesus. And it's going to be awesome. And I love what Keith Green said about this years ago. You know, he spent seven seven days on earth and 2,000 years on heaven. We're living in a garbage can compared to what's going on up there. That's wonderful. What Jesus offers here, gang, when He says do not let your hearts be troubled, is He offers a choice. He offers a choice. Whatever the situation or circumstance in your life, you can choose to be cheerful. Now someone might argue the point and say, hey, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows the sorrow. You know what? That's not true. If you are grousing around right now in grumpiness and dismal, sour, dour living, listen, it is not true that nobody knows your trouble. That's a lie of the enemy. In fact, it's a strategy of Satan. Isolation. If he can get you to think that you alone are experiencing the woe-be-gone life, and no one else has my kinds of trouble, baloney! I'll tell you what, no temptation has overtaken any of us but what is common to man. And I would take it a step further and say, I don't think any experience has overtaken us but what is common to man. There's always someone who has it worse than you. So what do you choose? The difference, gang, in the countenance of our faces is not based on what happens in our lives. It's based on what we choose. I love this in Fox's Book of Martyrs. The most used one-word description of the martyrs of the church is cheerful. Cheerful. That's the one he uses more often than any other to describe people who went to their death, people who were persecuted, people who suffered for Jesus Christ, cheerful. We have that choice. What do you feed on? What do you have an appetite for? You alone do not have a corner on hard times. So choose the joy of the Lord. Feed on the knowledge of God. A cheerful heart has a continual feast. Man, the table just keeps being spread. Verse 16, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and turmoil with it. Better is a dish of veggies where love is than a fattened ox served up with hatred. What's Solomon talking about? Contentment. Contentment. Better is a home that is peaceful and loving and joyful with very little on the table than a home that has everything you could possibly want and strife and hatred and bitterness. Paul says the key to godly living is contentment. He says, 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, Godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. In the small portions, be cheerful. If you don't have much on the plate, feast on the Word of the Lord. The way my life's going right now, I need less on my plate and more feasting on the Word of the Lord. Verse 18, A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow to anger 
calms a dispute. What does that mean? It means, it means someone who's got an anger issue is kind of like a tornado. He sucks everybody into his problem. You know? Draws everybody in. I heard this last week and I like this. The best remedy for a quick temper is a long prayer. If you're hot-headed, you need to spend a little more time on your knees. Verse 19. The way of the lazy is as a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a highway. Beautiful verse. What's that saying? Saying the lazy person always has to make their point. You know? A hedge of thorns. Pointy. They, I, I can't get there. I can't do it. I, I, I'm sorry, I just can't. There's some great verses on laziness. There's, there's a verse coming up where, where Solomon talks about a lazy person crying, there's a bear in the woods. What's that about? Well, I can't go out of my house. The bear might get me. You know what? What lazy people will come up with? My dad used to say to me, and I heard it over and over as a kid growing up. I'd say, Dad, I can't do that, and he'd say, hey, Can't never could do nothing. Born and raised in West Texas, my dad can't never could do nothing. Good phrase. That's what Solomon's saying here. The way of the lazy is a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a highway. What does that mean? It's clear. Doesn't necessarily mean easy, it means clear. If you walk with righteousness, integrity, if you are upright, your way is clear. I, I sent this verse out to a brother this last week, Revelation chapter 3, verse 8. One of my favorite verses. Behold, Jesus says to the church of Philadelphia, the church of the last days that is gospel minded, he says, Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut, because you have little power. And have kept my word and have not denied my name. You don't have a lot of power, but you've kept my word. You haven't denied my name. You know what I'm doing for you? You got a highway. Run. You got a wide open door. Go through it. Head the direction that I call you. Verse 20 A wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish man despises his mother. We talked about a similar proverb early on that there's something about the way the father looks at the sons and daughters and the way the mother does and the father, you know, the proud dad and the mom whose heart is broken when a son or a daughter does something foolish. That's what he's talking about there. Verse 21, Folly is joy to him who lacks sense, but a man of understanding walks straight. Verse 22, Without consultation, plans are frustrated. But with many counselors, they succeed. Or literally, they are established. They are established. It doesn't matter who you are. There is wisdom in much counsel. This is the wisdom of a plurality of elders or leaders in a church. I can't even tell you how many times a decision needs to be made or something needs to be prayed about or talked about. I I have come to rely on our shepherds because I so often just have no idea what to do, what the direction is we need to go. And with some prayer and some counsel, the Lord always reveals what we need to do. That's why He gives us each other in the church. And to be honest, it is complete foolishness to try and go it alone. To try and be the Christian who's an island. Well, I don't go to church and I don't hang out with Christians. They're all hypocrites anyway, but I just it's me and God. Well, it's not going to last very long. <laughs> We need support. We need the strength that comes from a plurality of counsel. That's, that's why I think one of the reasons why Jesus 
brought about the church in the first place. You know, for all the problems, for all the struggles, for all the mistakes and missteps and sin of the church of the last 2,000 years, it is God's design for this age. The church. And I love this passage. Hebrews 10.24, let's consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We need more time together, not less. But, But the world's gotten very busy. Exactly. We need more time together in the busyness of this age, in the the craziness of our society. And with that in mind, I invite you all, June 10th and 11th, to two days with Timothy, Friday night and Saturday, go through 2 Timothy, spend the day, spend the evening and the day together, worshiping, praying, and going through this entire letter. You're all invited. Hope you can come. As the day approaches, it's just foolishness to deny ourselves the counsel of fellow believers. Verse 20... Where are we? Verse 23. A man has joy in an apt answer, or literally the answer of his mouth, and how delightful is a timely word. We talked about that in conjunction with the Gospel. A timely word. A word spoken at the right time, watching for windows of opportunity to share the truth of the Gospel of Jesus. Verse 24. The path of life leads upward for the wise, that he may keep away from Sheol below. Verse 25. The Lord will tear down the house of the proud, but He will establish the boundary of the widow. Once again, we see in the Word of God, the haughty versus the helpless. The proud versus those who can't do for themselves. You know the old proverb, I'm sure you've heard, the Lord helps those who help themselves. It doesn't come from this book. You know what else doesn't come from this book? That... Cleanliness is next to godliness. Which if you didn't get a chance to shower today, God bless you, it's not in the Word. Okay, A lot of things people say and, and, and quote as though they come from Scripture, they don't. The Lord doesn't help themselves, it's the Lord helps those who help themselves to Him. Or the Lord helps the helpless. The Lord helps the helpless, which fit, fits here very well with He establishes the boundary of the widow. Verse 26 Evil plans are an abomination to the Lord, but pleasant words are pure. He who profits illicitly troubles his own house, but he who hates bribes will live. The heart, verse 28, of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. I really like that verse. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. That's the person who's thinking about, who's processing, who's chewing on the gospel, even before, or especially before you have opportunity to share the gospel. Listen, if you have a friend at work, a family member, someone who needs Jesus, I encourage you to spend some time praying about and thinking about what would I say to them if given the opportunity to say it. Be ready in season and out of season. Be prepared by the Word of God. To give an answer. The heart of the righteous ponders these things. Verse 29. The Lord is far from the wicked, but He hears the prayer of the righteous. I sat in an elders meeting one time many, many years ago. Not here. 
where one of the elders asked a question. He said, does God hear the prayers of the wicked? At the time, I, I just blurted out the only thing my young youth pastor mind could retort, and that was, I hope so, because I wouldn't be here. Does God hear the prayers of the wicked? You know, a lot of unbelieving people in the world do an awful lot of praying. You know the scene in Bruce Almighty, if you've seen that movie. I'm not recommending it, but if you've seen it, you know the scene. Where uh, where Jim Carrey's character, Bruce, he takes over the prayer requests and he decides to have all the prayers that are prayed put on post-it notes. And the entire room just goes... Bleh. Post-it notes cover everything. I mean, it's, it's hilarious. And then he thinks, no, instead I'll, I'll, I'll have them, I'll just have them come as emails. And all of a sudden, and they're just rolling on his computer nonstop, 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 until finally he just goes, yes, to everything. Copy it all, yes. It's interesting to me, a lot of people pray, but that doesn't mean God's hearing all those prayers. And to the best of my understanding at this point, when I read verses like this one, the Lord is far from the wicked, but hears the prayers of the righteous. There's one prayer that I know He hears from the wicked. Lord, forgive me. That prayer He never fails to hear. The prayer of repentance, the prayer of confession, He always hears immediately. All the other stuff, I doubt it. But that one, I know He hears. Verse 30. Bright eyes, glad in the heart. And I like this. Good news puts fat on the bones. <laughs> yes, such a way of putting things. Good news. The gospel, gang. Good news is nourishment. The gospel fattens the bones with life. It makes one healthy. The Spirit continues to invite us into the gospel, into the Word, the life-giving reproof of God and calling us then to be sharers of that same word. Verse 32. He who neglects discipline despises himself. Well, that's a jaunty tune. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> Just let the Lord know we'll, I'll call him back. <laughs> huh? That's right. <laughs> Verse 32, finishing out this chapter, He who neglects discipline despises himself, but he who listens to reproof acquires understanding. And the fear of the Lord is the instruction, or the instructor we talked about Sunday, the coach for wisdom. And before honor comes humility. And if you didn't hear this on Sunday, we talked about that, that that is always the path to honor. It's always through humility. Because God knows the heart of man, the heart of woman. And he knows we've got to walk through the path of humility so that we can handle honor. Otherwise, we can't handle it. And the more humbled we are, the more honored we may be because he can entrust more honor to us, having walked us through the place of humility. It's a good word. Well, I said we'd be a whole hour into chapter 15 before we got to 16. Actually, according to my little watch here, it's been 51 minutes, so I'm nine minutes ahead. Chapter 16. <laughs> now, in this next section, you're going to notice a running theme. And we'll see this actually rather quickly, but, but a running theme here. Follow this through with me. Beginning in verse 1, watch for the theme. The plans of the Lord belong to man. 
But the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Or you could say God has the last word. Is that your final answer? The Lord says, yes, it is. (laughs) All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. Commit your works to the Lord, and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Everyone who is proud in heart is, there's the word again, an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. By loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Verse 8, better is a little with righteousness than great income with injustice. In verse 9, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. This chapter, gang, reads like a roadmap to righteousness. And eight of the first nine verses tell us how to begin with the Lord. The key to righteousness is Yahweh. You notice that over and over. Suddenly, Solomon is saying, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, because he's talking about how to live life. He's talking about making your plans. He's talking about laying out that path of the road ahead. And he says, you know, if you're going to be laying out your plans, you need to understand, it's all the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, all the way down the line. It's the divine authority. Three things to note in this chapter before we finish tonight. Number one is the divine authority. Look back at verse 4. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose. Well, that's probably not the right or best translation. Because the word its in the Hebrew here can also be determined or, or be translated his. And I think that fits not only the context of this passage, but also all Scripture better. The Lord has made everything for His own purpose. The Bible supports that. God has made everything for His own purpose. Romans 11.33 For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Colossians 1.16 For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. The Lord has made everything for His own purpose. You know what that includes? Your life. My life. When we boil it all down, ultimately it comes to one point. We exist for Him. That's why we were created. For His purpose. Now He gives us the freedom to scatter our brains and go all over the place and do whatever we want. And we do. And we get off track easily. But you were created. I was created for His purpose. Revelation 4.11, I love this verse. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, or literally for your pleasure, they existed and were created. It's all for Him. Everything exists for Him. And until we get that, we will not get life. Until we understand that it is all for His purposes, His plans, His will, Life is not going to be abundant. The abundant life comes when we begin to realize, wow, it really is all about Jesus. It really is Him. 
I really do exist for Him. I'm here on this planet, this puny little Pastor Rick, for Him, for His purpose, by His divine authority. But what about that caveat? Even the wicked for the day of evil. The Lord has made everything for His own purpose. Even the wicked for the day of evil. This is a real sticking point for some. Especially if you are Calvinist. And you like the idea of talking God's sovereignty. God is sovereign and everything He's already determined and you're doing just what He's forced you to do anyway. If you're of that camp, then things like this, He, he, he created... The, or if you're from actually the other camp that says it's free will, we kind of have a problem with this verse. He's even made the wicked for the day of evil. Calvinists would say, of course... They were predetermined to be evil and to do wicked things. Therefore, they're just doing exactly what God created them to do. Hang on. I want you to think through this for a second. Exodus chapter 7, verse 3, and many other passages in Exodus say a similar thing. The Lord saying, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that I may multiply my signs and my wonders, or wonders in the land of Egypt. I will harden his heart. And those are the free will camp. And by the way, I think it's a little bit of both, but we won't get into that just yet. Those are the free will camp would say, wait a minute, that's a problem. If God hardens Pharaoh's heart, he's taken away his free will. So maybe there is something to the fact that God is just sovereign. Divine authority and, and commands. And we just do, we're like, kind of like automatons, we just do what we were created to do. And if we were created to be evil, that's the deal. Perhaps Pharaoh was just a pawn in God's chess game with Egypt. Paul picks up on this. Romans chapter 9, verse 17, and writes, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, quote, For this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth, so that he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens who he desires. Well, thanks for that help, Paul. <laughs> because now I'm more confused about this. The sovereignty of God, listen, the sovereignty of God can be frightening and a bit overwhelming. But note this. We're told in the book of Exodus eight times, eight times, God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. However, in the same story, we're told eight times that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Well, which one is it? It's both. It's both. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God allows, gives free will. God, the divine authority, though sovereign, made man a free moral agent able to choose our path. And even when man chooses evil, God uses that choice for his own sovereign purposes. The reality with Pharaoh is God's looking at him and saying... You're choosing to harden your heart. Let me help you with that. The Lord would just as easily say to you, say to me, you're choosing to give your life to Jesus. Let me help you with that. So what God is great at is reading our hearts to a T. He knows exactly what... He's not forcing the choice. He knows what we are going to choose. And He comes alongside us to strengthen that decision. Even when it's a decision like Pharaoh's of rebellion. Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened it more. 
The same sovereignty, by the way, that hardened the heart of Pharaoh used Israel for his ultimate purpose. Well, what's that? You know, God's purpose is not just to save Israel because He kind of likes Jewish people. I've known a lot of Jewish people in my life. Some I like very much. Others are just hard not to have a problem with. (laughs) Kind of like everybody else. God doesn't love the Jews because they're Jews. God doesn't didn't give a covenant to Abraham because out of all the people of the earth, he went, you know, he's kind of cool. I want to hang with Abraham. God chose this people, covenanted with this people, so that his faithfulness might be revealed. So that we could see his glory, his goodness, his power. And by the way, that's another reason I cannot accept preterism. Because God has not given up on the Jewish people. For God to give up on the Jewish people is for God to break his promises, and he doesn't do that. But if the Jews are still God's people, why do they still lack for peace? People ask that question. Look at verse 7. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. i got to take you back. Last Wednesday night, Prophecy Update, we talked about the brilliant statesmanship of Benjamin Netanyahu. And how... Regardless of how you feel about our president, that the scene there was stunning. Netanyahu in one chair and Obama in the other chair, and Obama makes a few comments, and then Netanyahu unleashes truth and really schooled our president. And when it was all said and done, I was just sitting there going, I just watched history. That was amazing. In fact, it's rare, but on the particular news channel I was watching, it flipped back to the newscaster, and for a moment he was just. He went. <laughs> Wow. (laughs) Look right at the camera. Wow. And it was stunning. But there was something missing. In in the brilliance of Bibi Netanyahu, there was something missing. And i got to read to you part of the analysis that Joel Rosenberg did the next day. Listen to this. The Prime Minister's speech to Congress was excellent in many ways. He rightly described the epic battle underway in the epicenter. He described the great shaking going on in the Middle East. He rightly warned that Iran and her nuclear program is the greatest threat, that Hamas is the new Al-Qaeda, and that in all of the Arab world, the only, only Israeli Arabs have true safety, security, and fully protected human and civil rights. Interesting. I've included some important excerpts from the speech below, he says. And then he says, however, it needs to be noted that Netanyahu never cited the Bible. Never called on the name of the Lord. Never called on the Jewish people to trust fully and completely in the God of Israel. But rather promised to divide the land of Israel as a concession to the Palestinians. Even while promising never to divide Jerusalem, these were, Rosenberg says, mistakes. He wasn't the first Israeli prime minister to make them, but he is making them nonetheless. He was right to thank the U.S. for all our help and support of Israel over the years, and he was right to seek continued help and support from the American people and government. But neither he nor Israel should become dependent upon American help because, put on your seatbelts, the Bible tells us it won't be there for long. I read that and went... I wish I had read that, you know, before last Wednesday night, because that, he hits the nail on the head. Netanyahu never appealed to the God of Israel. 
Why is Israel, as God's people, still facing war after war after war and facing no peace? Well, frankly, because when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And if we were in that situation where where Israel was crying out to God, you see, the Bible tells us there's a day coming when they will. And you know what the result will be? Peace. The Prince of Peace will come when the people of Israel realize their their Messiah is Yeshua HaMashiach. We have a father gang who uses everything for his plan. He is the divine authority. Even our hard-heartedness can be used for the plan of God. Be it his own people Israel, he uses us for his plan. Be it even the wicked for the day of evil. But don't miss this in the middle of these verses. This is becoming kind of a, a continual thing for us. Jesus sits right in the middle. Did you catch it? Verse 6, By loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for. By grace and truth. By grace and truth, which are realized through Jesus Christ, John 1.17. By grace and truth, iniquity is atoned for. So right here in the middle of Solomon describing the divine authority of God, he says, oh, and by the way, it's by grace and truth that sin is dealt with. And by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. Jesus is there. And so Colossians 3.17, Paul says, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. He is the divine authority. Secondly, in this chapter, we see now not the divine authority, but the delegated authority. The delegated authority. Verse 10. A divine decision is in the lips of the king. His mouth should not err in judgment. A just balance and scales belong to the Lord. All the weights of the bag are His concern. Why is that stuck in there? Because it's talking about justice and fairness. And so Solomon now is turning his attention to authority, earthly authority, delegated authority. In his case, the king. He's saying a king needs to be just and right. And his mouth should be right in judgment. Verse 12, it's an abomination for kings to commit wicked acts. For a throne is established on righteousness. Righteous lips are the delight of kings, and he who speaks right is loved. The fury of a king is like messengers of death, but a wise man will appease it. In the light of a king's face is life, and his favor is like a cloud with the spring or the latter rains. Delegated authority. Our God, who is intimately concerned with justice and fairness and equity, delegates that authority to human government. Which is especially interesting to me in our day and age. That human government is there by the hand of God. Paul says in Romans 13.1, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Now, therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Hey, I'll grumble about my property taxes, but I'll pay them. I may grumble about things even local government does, but you know, I need to obey. Why? God had a hand in it? The same God who knows 
what I need to pay my property taxes and provides and has always provided for my family. But the human governing authorities, this delegated authority, it sounds good. Obey the governing authorities. But what do you do when the government is unjust? What do you do when the delegated authority is anything but divine when it's corrupt? Paul wrote Romans 13 in the days of the insane homicidal ruler Nero. We need to see that chapter in context. Romans 13. Go read it. God set the governing authorities in place. And, God, and, and Paul wrote that to the church that was living under the horror of Nero, who was murdering Christians at will, dipping them in hot wax, hanging them on poles, lighting them on fire in his garden. Paul says, obey the governing authorities. What? If you were a member of the Roman church at the time, you would have said, what? But my sister was just killed by Nero. And I'm supposed to be in subjection? (laughs) How about men like Daniel? Daniel who served in the corrupt courts of Babylon and then Persia. He actually served under four different rulers. All of them had their issues. Daniel served there as as a man of God. And how about Christians living in Iran today? There are some. Or living in China. And by the way, the crackdowns in China are getting worse, not better. What about Christians living in the Gaza Strip today? How in the world are they supposed to read Romans 13? Or read about the delegation of God's authority to men? What do you do when the delegated authority becomes corrupt? I give you a one-word answer. You pray. If you want another word, you obey. Unless it goes in direct contradiction with the Word of God, you pray and you obey. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a quiet and tranquil life in all godliness and dignity. Pray and obey. How much time have you spent on your knees for President Barack Obama? How much time have you spent praying for him personally? For Michelle and the kids? How much time have you spent praying for this White House? Better question, tougher question. How much time have I spent praying for President Obama versus grumbling about it? I don't want to deal with that. And whatever your political sensibilities... If any of you happen to be Democrats sitting in here, how much time did you put in praying for President Bush in his eight years in office? I said this, and I don't mean to get all political. I did a couple weeks ago when I said, it's not Democrat or Republican or Independent or anything else. It's Christian. I am first and foremost a child of God. I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm an American. But I am more a citizen of heaven. I share my citizenry with Christians who live in the Palestinian regions, with Christians who live in Iran. Our concern is never the earthly kingdom or the government of man. 
wherever we live, be it America, be it China, Rome, Babylon, our citizenry is of a different realm. We are citizens of a coming kingdom. And so regardless, and I love this about the Chinese church. And this is what Johan, a, a, a friend that we met when we were in the Philippines, Chinese man working with the Chinese underground church. And this is what Johan said. He said, don't, don't pray against our government. Pray for the spread of the gospel. The reality is the persecution of the Chinese underground church is causing the gospel to spread more. So, go for it. Pray for God's purposes to be done. Whatever the government is, whatever the situation is, for we, Hebrews 11.16, desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. He has prepared a city for them. The delegated authority. And number three, final one, we get down to the distinct authority or, or the individual authority. The distinct authority. Verse 16. How much better is it to get wisdom than gold? All the commercials are out right now. Buy gold! <laughs> buy gold! No, buy wisdom. And to get understanding is to be chosen above silver. And I like verse 17. The highway of the upright is to depart from evil. He who watches his way preserves his life, or literally his soul. What he's saying in verse 17 is, is important for all of us, but especially it lets out to you younger people. Check this out. Verse 17, the highway of the upright is to depart from evil, not to parallel evil. Not to run alongside or to run with, but to depart from, to take 180 degrees and go the opposite direction from evil. We are not called to share the pavement or to run parallel with or to engage in talks with evil. We are called to walk away. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 1 John 2.15 And so the call is, is to completely turn and go the opposite direction. And what we see in the church, tragically, too often, is trying to parallel evil. Trying to look like the world. When this word says, uh-uh, you're not going to save anybody by looking like them. People are going to get saved when they see how distinct you are, how different, how cheerful, how full of the hope of the gospel of Jesus you are. And the truth is, the more we love the world, the less we will long for His appearing. And think about that. The more comfortable you are here, the less you're going to want Jesus to come back. The converse is true. The more you long for His appearing, the less you'll love the world. I don't care how good it is here, I'd rather be there. So why do so many attempt a worldly approach to church? Why does the church ever run parallel? Why do Christians ever run parallel to the world? And the answer, I think, is verse 18. Pride goes before destruction. And a haughty spirit before stumbling. It's better to be humble in spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Sunday we talked about this. The natural tendency of man is not humility, it's pride. And if we as a fellowship do things according to the natural man, not only will pride seep in, but the love of the world will as well. John says in 1 John 2.16, All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, it's not from the Father, it is from the world.
Verse 20, He who gives attention to the Word will find good. Not the world, the Word. And blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. The wise in heart will be called understanding. And sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness or learning. Verse 22, understanding is a fountain of life to one who has it, but the discipline of fools is folly. The heart of the wise instructs the mouth. That's the bit we started talking about earlier on this evening. The bit of wisdom. The heart of the wise instructs the mouth and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Hey, you want to be persuasive with the gospel of Jesus Christ? It starts with your heart. And when your heart is right before the Lord and you start to share the gospel then with friends and loved ones, you will be far more persuasive than when your heart is like the rest of the world and you don't look any different. Verse 24, I love this verse, pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. Oh, I, I love this because I love honeycomb. I read this verse and I just I could taste it. We used to go to McAllen, Texas to visit my grandmother summer vacation. And I, the first time we went there, I remember as a little kid, she brought out fresh honey and it was in a big bowl. And there was a honk and piece. And I didn't even know what it was. It was just this thing floating in the honey. I'm like, what is that? And my grandma said, that's honeycomb. And I said, can you eat it? She said, yeah, because I was a honey freak. Still am. Can you? Yeah, you can eat it. She gave me a spoon, and I, I just remember dipping into that honeycomb and pulling out a big old crunchy piece and just chewing into it, and the honey in my mouth. Oh, even now it makes my mouth water. <laughs> and the Word of God is like that. It is sweet to the taste. It is honeycomb. How do I develop sweet speech that is sweet to the soul and healing to the bones? Dip into the honeycomb. You dip into the Word. The law of the Lord, Psalm 19.7, is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. Oh, they are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. If you want to have speech that's sweet, dip into the honeycomb. Verse 25. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Solomon repeats this proverb. We saw it in chapter 14, verse 12. Why does he repeat it? Because it is central to staying on the path. There are many ways that seem right. Many different pathways. And we live in a world that says, oh, all rivers lead into the ocean. All the roads end up in the same place. Universalism. There are many, many rivers all leading down to the one and same sea. You know where that quote comes from? Any guesses? Hmm? The Koran? Satan. Satan? Satan? You might be surprised. It comes from the Bible. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 7. But listen to the context. Solomon writing, as a bitter old man, all the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, they flow again. And he says, all things 
are wearisome. Man takes hold of that verse and says, all rivers flow into the sea and we're all going to end up in one great glorious place. And that's not the context. The context, if you want to choose all these rivers, is that you will just end up right back where you started. You'll never get there. All these different options. There's one way that gets you home. There is one way that's right. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And yet Jesus, in the most unequivocal statement of His entire ministry, said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by Me. All these rivers will just lead you right back to the, to the fountain, right back to the beginning. But if you walk with Me, the one way, the only way, you will be saved. You will get to the Father My way. Verse 26 A worker's appetite works for him, for his hunger urges him on. That's good. That's good. Hunger urges. Hunger drives us on. Hunger is a great motivator. In fact, Paul applied the issue of hunger and its motivation to the benevolence ministry of the church in Thessalonica. This is interesting to me because this is Paul's prescription, part of it, for benevolence ministry. He says... 2 Thessalonians 3.10 If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Well, that's a little... Our church doesn't do it that way, Paul. Well, Paul's church did. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. (laughs) How would that sound? Someone says, Pastor Rick... I'm having a little struggle here, a little financial struggle, and I'm wondering if you could give me a hand. And I say, yeah, sure, eat your own bread. Where'd you get that, Paul? (laughs) The Bible tells us hunger is a great motivator. Hunger is a great motivator. Worker's appetite works for him. Hunger urges him on. Jesus applied this motivation to righteousness, saying, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And there's something about righteousness. Have you noticed this in your life? That the longer you walk with the Lord, the hungrier you get. That the more time you spend in the Word... See, it's it's the opposite of what people sometimes think. If I start devoting hours and hours and hours to Bible study, it's just going to wear me out. Uh Uh-uh, it makes you more hungry. The more you're in the Word, the more you want of the Word. What starts out as milk becomes meat, becomes honeycomb, and it's sweet. The hunger stays. Verse 27. A worthless man digs up evil, while his words are like scorching fire. A perverse man spreads strife, and a slanderer separates intimate friends. By the way, the word slanderer there is a whisperer. Someone who's sharing secrets, who's whispering behind back, who's undermining friendship and relationship. Do you know what she says when you're not in the room? Maybe you ought to wait until she's in the room to share what that is. Verse 29, a man of violence entices his neighbor and leads him in a way that is not good. He who winks his eye does so to devise perverse things. He who compresses his lips brings evil to pass. 
He who compresses his lips. What exactly does that mean? Earlier, we saw that a person who feasts on godly things has a cheerful face. But here we see someone who compresses his lips brings evil to pass. We have a pinched countenance here. You know? Someone who's involved in evil who's going, mm-hmm, yeah, we've got it all worked out. All these verses, 27 through 30, these are ways that can seem right to a man. But their end is the way of death. Digging up evil, scorching words, whispering slander, devising perverse things. It's what happens. It's what happens when we live by our own authority. When we live by our distinct authority, this is the outcome. But the Spirit has a better way. Verse 31, A gray head is a crown of glory. It is found in the way of righteousness. And by the way, inherent in the word found there, what's implied is if. If. I won't go into why right now, but the Hebrew word for found, the way that it is written, a gray head is a crown of glory if it is found in the way of righteousness. If you walk in the way of righteousness, gentlemen, ladies even, when your hair turns gray, it's a crown to you. Because people won't look at you as a foolish old man, a bitter old woman. No, they will look at you as one who is wise in the Lord. One who has years of walking with Jesus. I find those with the crown of glory because they walk in righteousness to be some of the most precious people to be around. I love learning from them. I love hearing what they've learned. And he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. The wisdom of age, strength of emotional self-control, the rule of integrity, we don't come by any of these things naturally. These things are learned. These things are taught. These things are characteristics of someone who's not walking by their own authority, but who's walking under divine authority. And that's the choice we have. Verse 33, and we'll end. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. You know, we can flip the coin, we can draw the straw, roll the dice. We can even cast the vote. But ultimately... Ultimately, His divine authority is over all delegated authority and over all distinct authority. Ultimately, the Lord has made everything for His own purpose. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, bless You. Thank You. God, we love Your Word. I pray that it will go down tonight as sweet as honeycomb. I pray that it will be received in our hearts and our spirits well. And Lord, that we will pursue righteousness. That we will be people of realness and genuine relationship with You. Saved by Your grace, pursuing Your righteousness, seeking to please You, not because we think we can get something off of You, but because, Lord, we just want to please You. Because we love to see You happy. May our countenance reflect the joy of the Lord in our hearts, in our souls. And may we learn to live righteous before You. Jesus, keep us on the one path until You bring us home and Lord Jesus, come quickly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.